Good evening, and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. You can also find our beautiful May print edition across the city in our red and white news boxes and in more than 60 public libraries, as well as independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues. It's great to be with you here on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have a full show today. In our first segment, we'll speak with Assemblymember Marcella Matanez and housing justice organizer Rodrigo Camarena about renewed efforts to win sweeping affordable housing legislation in Albany this spring. And we'll also hear from them about a big march and rally here in New York City this Saturday to amplify those demands. Later, we'll hear from Betsy Plum of the Writers Alliance about the fight for a a better uh, mass transit system here in New York. Uh, uh, The state recently allocated hundreds of millions of dollars in new funding uh, for the subway and bus system here in the city. So that's some exciting news uh, Betsy's going to fill us in on. And later in the show, my colleague, from the Independent, Amba Gagarian, will be talking with Kimberly Bernard of Black Women's March about the recent protest for justice for Jordan Neely and why protest organizers took risks like protesting on the subway tracks. But first, we turn to the struggle for affordable housing. As we all know, the rent is not only too damn high, but it's going through the roof. Not that our top political leaders seem to notice. In Albany, Governor Kathy Hochul has refused to support good cause eviction uh, laws and other measures to protect tenants. And here in the city, the Rent Guidelines Board, appointed by Mayor Eric Adams, is weighing whether to increase rents by as much as 7% over the next two years for the roughly 1 million rent-stabilized apartments in the city. On Saturday, the Housing Justice for All Coalition, which encompasses dozens of groups, will be holding a Rent is Too Damn High rally and march at Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn starting at 11 a.m. Joining me today to discuss this are Assemblymember Marcella Matanez, whose 51st district encompasses Sunset Park and Red Hook, and Rodrigo Camarena, an organizing committee member of the NYC DSA Housing Working Group. Welcome, both of you, to WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me. And great seeing you, uh, Rodrigo. Yeah, so good to be here, John. So good to be here with you, Marcela. Yes. So, uh, Assemblymember Matanias, let's uh, start with you. Uh, can, can you give us an update on where things stand in Albany at this point uh, in the efforts to win uh, a sweeping affordable housing uh, legislation? Uh, really, nothing uh, got into the the big state uh, budget deal that was concluded a couple of weeks ago. Can you uh, tell us what uh, you and other progressives and socialists are fighting for and why uh, progress has been stymied so far? Sure. Um, So we were working really hard to try and get the good cause into the budget because we know that it's, you know, something that was going to pass. We wanted to make sure that we were providing for renters in the state of New York. Um, unfortunately, the governor only wanted to talk about um, her housing compact, and that is really just to build. So she wasn't interested in in talking about tenant protections. And so that's when the conversations about um, housing stopped. 
uh, during the, the budget. And so the understanding was that we were going to deal with this after the budget. And so we've only got a couple of weeks left. And so I, along with other progressives, are actively talking to our colleagues, wanting to understand um, what are some of the issues that they have? What is it some of the priorities that they need to bring back to their districts? Um, and I think that what we're looking at is uh, trying to pass a package of bills by the end of session that would really begin to uh, break down some of the issues and some of the problems that we have. This is going to be something that, you know, uh, districts are very different. And so there's going to have to be compromise and um, everyone's going to need to kind of give in a little bit to get what what it is that they need. So that's what I'm focused on. That's what I'm working on. Uh, my top priority is the good cause eviction bill. Um, prior to coming into the assembly, I worked for about 10 years uh, just advocating and organizing, not just in, in my district, but citywide, statewide. And I've even organized uh, nationally on housing issues. And the one thing that constantly came over, which was very heartbreaking, were the fact that there are some tenants that live in what's called unregulated units. And so they don't have a right to a lease. Um, the landlord can arbitrarily decide how much the rent increase is going to be. And unfortunately, um, the landlord doesn't have to give a reason to evict these tenants, just has to go to housing court and ask the judge to return his property. And so in Sunset Park, we've had people that have been living in these types of housing for uh, 10, 15, some even 20 years and more. And maybe in the past it wasn't an issue, uh, but definitely now they are being priced out. They are being forced out. They are being evicted. And they don't understand because a lot of these tenants are good tenants. They're paying their rent every month. And so they don't understand why legally the landlord can just evict them. And so that's what we want to change. Um, it's going to bring basic tenant protections to tenants that don't currently have it now. If we can stabilize the rents, we can stabilize households and we can stabilize our communities and we can start working to making sure people um, can afford to stay here. I just uh, spoke. Um, we had a rally on Saturday. I was uh Speaking to the father, they have a small, um, they have a small school and they're this seeing is a rally their numbers. That you participated in in Sunset Park. Yes. I guess it's almost like a warm up rally for uh, this Saturday's rally in Cadman Plaza. Right. Because, uh, I have this power. I have this bully pulpit and I need to use it. So part of it was, you know, reporting back to the constituents in my community about what's happening, where the stall in all on Albany is. And that the fact that we have a governor who seems to think the solution to the housing problem is just to build. Nobody has time to wait for affordable housing to be built. We know that the affordable housing that's been built is not affordable to the people that really need it. Um, and they're getting priced out. And so this is my way of sounding the alarm. I'm letting folks know what's going on, what I'm working towards, right? And the good cause eviction bill is just one. There's also HAVP, which is a rental subsidy at the state level. And there's also a TOPA, the Tenants Opportunity to Purchase Act, which would allow tenants to be uh, have the right to bid on the property that they live in if and when the landlord decides to sell it. You know, uh, this would need fi financial assistance so the tenants can acquire the property. Um, but this would be a uh, huge in allowing folks to move from the working class to the middle class by being owners. It would help keep these uh, affordable units in the community as well. So there's 
various things that we can do. Um, unfortunately, the, the governor's just focused on, on building. Right. She wants to build mostly market rate housing and in the suburbs where there's resistance uh, there. Well, it's interesting, right? Um, what she wants to do is she wants to build and the folks upstate, uh, don't feel it's right for the state, um, to overreach on what the municipalities want, right? And I say that that's interesting because, um, those 10 years that I was organizing, I was educating tenants on, uh, legislation and who was passing legislation. And so there was a lot of trips that I did up to Albany. Um, but also, um, New York doesn't have home rule. And so a lot of the rent stabilization laws were gutted because there was support from upstate, uh, representatives who didn't have rent stabilization in the apartment, who didn't have anyone to hold them accountable, but they were able to help move the votes that were needed. And so we've seen some things, um, that have really started to gut. Um, rent stabilization, which is the largest affordable housing stock that we have. And so the 2019 was a really long fight to try to reverse some of those changes. Um, and it was a bittersweet victory in particular because we passed eight of the nine bills in that package. And the bill that wasn't passed was the good cause eviction bill. Right. And just, uh, I guess, one biographical detail for some of our listeners who may not know, I mean, your family immigrated from Peru when you were a child, and then later on, about uh, about 20 years ago, uh, your family was evicted from its uh, apartment, and so and you experienced that whole cycle of uh, displacement uh, yeah. and yourself. So and so you, was- I mean, you, you've walked the walk here. Yeah, the neighborhood was being gentrified. So that was a new term that I learned. Um, I lost, I got evicted from a run stabilized apartment that I shared with my family for over 30 years. Uh, we got a new landlord and within six months, he displaced half of the 35 unit building. We didn't understand what was happening. We were all scared. It was definitely a learning lesson for me. But at that time, I, you know, I just kept thinking, you know, I'm young, I can find another place, I can move on, I can figure it out. But then I thought about my neighbors, right? I thought about Flora, who was, you know, the old lady that lived on the first floor in the building in front of her, who raised her kids, was now, you know, living by herself. Uh, the landlord was very, very aggressive, harassing tenants. Um, and it's something that I've never experienced before. I talk about, you know, um, the anxiety that it creates when you're, you know, your work day is ending and you know you have to go home and you don't want to go home because that place doesn't feel safe anymore. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if the landlord's going to show up, you know, and during my course of just working and trying to educate my neighbors, um, I ran across a lot of families that were experiencing the same trauma, right? I talk about um, a young lady that I met when she was 11 who uh, told me about uh, when the landlord would come uh, to her home. She knew it was a landlord by the way that she knocked, would barge in, scream and insult her parents uh, to the point where her little brother would run and hide under his bed. And then that hasn't changed. I had the um, I had the privilege of having the speaker come to my district at the beginning of the year. And I talked I took him to one of the last buildings that I was organizing, which was three eight unit buildings on 23rd Street 
whose owner had passed away and his adult children were coming around and collecting rent uh, from mostly uh, immigrant families that didn't speak English. And the kids were not paying the property taxes and the buildings were about to be foreclosed. Um, no one was paying, you know, the electric bill in the common areas. Um, and so their services were beginning to be shut off. And so um, I met a family there that had the same experience. They had a small child. And when the landlord came to the door, he would run and hide under his bed. And I couldn't believe that she was sharing that story because I had heard it so many years before. But this time the Speaker of the Assembly was there and was listening right directly from people that are being impacted. And so um, I'm very proud of the one house budget that the assembly did. Um, we worked really hard to get a lot of important things in there. Unfortunately, it didn't make its way out, um, but we are still continuing to talk. And, you know, I'm very appreciative that the speaker knows the importance of, you know, needing to pass um, some tenant protections. Now I've, I've heard before that something like maybe eight, 10, 12, members of the Democratic Caucus of the State Assembly are themselves uh, landlords uh, who own properties that would be affected by good cause eviction uh, law. Um, it, is that proving to be part of the obstacle as well, that some of your colleagues have a material interest in thwarting this? I've always felt like that was uh, the case that years when I was coming up here. Um, and then recently I learned that one of the members um, owns property and they're doing Airbnb. Um, and really those apartments should not be short term rentals. They can actually be monthly rentals for people that actually need them. So, um, obviously this is, you know, a business for them. And so I think at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to constituents to put them before profits. Right. And I, I want to uh, pivot over here to, uh, uh, Rodrigo Camarena advocate with, uh, uh New York City. Uh, Democratic Socialists of America, their housing working group. Uh, uh, Rodrigo, uh, can you talk about uh, uh, what you all have been doing and, and, and what your experience has been of trying to, uh, as a as an outsider, trying to move the needle in Albany? Sure. Thanks, uh, John. You know, like Marcela was saying, um, I've also experienced and, and, and uh, my neighbors have experienced the injustice that many of us live here in New York State, right? When it comes to housing and renting. Um, at the DSA, we're, we're coalition partners of the Housing Justice Working Group uh, for All Coalition and have, uh, you know, insisted on having our legislators, uh, back good cause eviction protections, back the housing voucher assistance program. We, we succeeded in getting our state senator, Andrew Gennardis, to, to support good cause eviction protection, but we have a long way to go. Uh, even though, you know, we've been successful in getting elected officials to change their mind. There are still many that don't think we need these uh, these protections, that tenants aren't hurting enough. And so what we're trying to do as as uh, as activists and advocates is, 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 is make the case to them, not just in Albany, but in the streets. And that's what May 20th is about. May 20th is about showing the power of the tenant movement. May 20th, uh, the march in, in, at, at Cotterman Plaza is about uh, demonstrating to elected officials uh, that the tenant movement is strong and powerful and that renters and New Yorkers are fed up with the status quo. We can't continue to try uh, to promise market-based long-term solutions for uh, immediate problems, problems that people are feeling in their communities, in the neighborhoods, in their buildings every day. So, um, 
there's a lot of work to do and we're, we're hoping that people turn out this Saturday at Cadman Plaza to, to, to show to, you know, all those fancy people in Albany and in City Hall, um, that this is not going to go away. This is going to follow them and, uh, that, you know, the status quo is not, not good enough. Right. And can you also uh, comment on uh, what's going on at the rent guidelines board right now? The nine member body that decides each year how much uh, rents will go up for the roughly 960,000 rent stabilized apartments here in the city. Right. I mean, the rent guidelines board, again, a mayorally appointed board, completely undemocratic. I happen to have been a former public member of this board um, who <laughs> voted to, to, uh, to freeze rents and was kicked off the board subsequently because of that. Um, you know, voted to increase rents for rent stabilized units by as high as 7%, uh, which is unthinkable in a moment when, uh, food costs are so high, healthcare costs are so high, when, uh, rent, uh, more broadly is, has been on an increase. I think in the last two decades, we've seen the, li- the, har- the highest surges in rent in New York City. Um, it's unthinkable. You know, rent stabilized housing is meant to be uh, a protection. It's meant to f- offer stability in the household. It's meant to, make New York City uh, livable. Um, you mentioned the million units are impacted by this, by the decision of this board. That's 2 million individuals. That's, that's families. That's, that's our neighborhood. So, um, you know, while Albany is completely uh, broken when it comes to passing tenant protections, and we have good people like Marcella and others that are fighting for, for those protections in the city of New York, uh, the mayor, mayor, the mayor's appointed board is trying to, to make life harder for, for millions of New Yorkers. So I think the March on May 20th is really about, uh, the pain we're feeling at the city level, at the state level, at the household level, um, and the pain that many of us who work with, with tenants, who work with immigrant communities, who work with working class communities know, know very well. Right. And the, and the rent guidelines board final uh, decision will be made in, uh, late June. So this rally is a, a chance to try to influence uh, the discussion around that as well. Um, yeah. I have to go in a minute, but uh, uh, Assemblymember Matanias, I just had one more question for you. Uh, can you comment both on the the statewide scope of the Housing Justice for All Coalition and, and the difference it makes that there is now this downstate, upstate alliance of renters? Um, and also, to what extent does uh, in all the agitation and protest uh, of tenants uh, uh influence uh, the the conversations uh, behind closed doors in Albany. Uh, you've been on both sides of that uh, divide uh, now. Yeah, so I think it's uh, it's been a huge um, help to be able to join forces with um, upstate folks because a lot of times when you talked about housing issues or things with tenants, um, they were they would refer it as as to a downstate issue and it's not right um upstate has a bunch of unregulated units and upstate would benefit a lot more from having a uh, good cause eviction um the movement has grown as the need for uh, better tenant protection has grown and i think that you know a lot of tenants are scared they feel alone they don't understand what's going on they don't realize like i did when i started that there are community organizations that actually help you with this, right? So part of it is educating yourself on the rights that you have as a, as a tenant, but also understanding the way our politics works, right? And so I think that, um, 
the marches and the rallies have been um, like alarms that we're, we're, we're sending out so that people understand that they are not alone, that they can also uh, join the movement and be part of the change, right? And I think that it's been a huge difference here in Albany to see the mass mobilization. I get super excited when they're coming up here um, because I used to be one of those tenants that came up and was curious and didn't understand the way government worked. And, you know, I learned a lot and our, our folks are really smart. They understand what's going on. You know, anytime we can tap into constituencies to then have them contact their elected officials and engage civically, um, I think is really important. And definitely, I feel like um, there's been a change. There's been a change, not just in uh, the mass mobilization, but it's also influenced who's running for office, right? I can see a difference where a lot of my colleagues are also renters, right? I have a colleague in the in the Senate who kind of has to move every year because she keeps, you know, finding these unregulated right. units. They don't want to renew it. And so she ends up having to move. So there's a lot more understanding of what's happening on the ground floor with tenants and the uh, some of the abuse and some of the harassment that they go. And I think that's really, really important okay. to bring to be part of, of the work that you're doing up here. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But I think uh, both of you, Assemblymember Marcella Matenias, uh, Democratic Socialist, uh, represents the 51st District in Brooklyn in Sunset Park, Red Hook, and also uh, uh, Rodrigo Camarena uh, from the NYC DSA Housing uh, Working Group. Uh, we'll see both of you on Saturday out at uh, Cadman Plaza at the big uh, rally. Yes, Thanks. come out. Bring a friend. See you all. Yeah, excited to see you out there. Okay. And we'll, after this uh, music break, we'll be back, uh, with, uh, 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 mass transit advocate. That's another movement that's, uh, been on the move and, and they won some important victories, uh, recently in Albany. So we're going to hear about that.
That was Open Eyes by Rivka Aini. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor of the Independent. For our second segment, we'll take a look at one area in the recent state budget deal in Albany where advocates won a lot, and that's mass transit. There will be hundreds of millions of dollars in new funding for more frequent off-peak evening and weekend subway service. We certainly need it. And more than a billion dollars in new sustainable funding to keep the MTA running. In an email to supporters, Betsy Plum, executive director of the Riders Alliance, wrote, quote, we are not the sexy or simple issue to take on, but we broke through. Joining us now to elaborate on what commuters have gained is Betsy Plum of the Riders Alliance. Betsy, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Thanks so much. So, uh, for starters, can you just uh, outline uh, a little bit more of what was won in that state budget deal for uh, strap hangers and bus riders uh, here in, in New York? Absolutely. Uh, so it was a, as we were, you were just talking about, a really turbulent and challenging state budget. Um, but riders came together and were able to win some really monumental changes to or uh, that will help improve the lives of everyday New Yorkers uh, with more convenient, affordable public transit. So what does that look like? Uh, the the element that we're really excited about um, that will really have a tremendous impact for transit riders in this year's budget is what you just mentioned, new subway service frequency improvements that will be phased in over the next year that will really drop uh, most off-peak headways, talking about midday, in the evening, on the weekend, when we're really seeing those long, long wait times down to around eight minutes. Uh, so that's a huge moment that that we've seen. That was our number one campaign this year, fighting for more service, more frequency. Uh, it is a complex thing to explain. It's a little wonky. And, and so that's why we said it certainly wasn't simple. It certainly wasn't sexy. What else was there? Um, something else you mentioned, $1.1 billion in new recurring funding to sustain MTA operations. So the MTA, like most other public transit agencies across the country, uh, has had a lot of fiscal impact because of COVID, uh, losses in ridership. And when you have an agency that has so much of its budget dependent on fares, that fiscal collapse um, and the risk of it, which for riders means steep fare hikes, dramatic service cuts, layoffs, um, the death spiral that's talked about that would really absolutely devastate our region was was on the table and at risk. And so the new funding for the MTA and, and their operations will avert that fiscal cliff. We also saw uh, there was a planned fare hike that was softened uh, to a 4% fare hike. They had been proposing a 5.5% fare hike uh, so that'll look like the fare will go up about uh, 10 cents. And then there is a free bus pilot uh, coming. So five bus routes across the city will be made free as part of a pilot, one in each borough. And the last piece for bus riders is there was a, a the automated bus lane enforcement program was made permanent, made citywide and it citywide and it was expanded. Uh, this is another wonky sounding <laughs> piece of, of legislation sure. and program, but it's actually really important and it makes our streets a lot more equitable. It means if you're in a car and you're blocking a bus lane, if you're in a car uh, and you're double parked, you're parked in a bus stop, making it so that people can't get onto the bus, um, cameras on buses can now 
ticket those cars. And, and that really means that, that bus riders and their time will count more and they will hopefully be able to, to get where they need to go um, more quickly and with fewer um, obstacles. Right. And uh, where do things stand with congestion pricing? It's moving forward. Last week, the federal government approved uh, the program. They issued a draft finding of no significant impact. That means the ball is back in our home court. Uh, there is a month of public, uh, basically the, the draft environmental assessment, um, the final determination needs to be publicly accessible. And so we expect in about 30 days, that finding of no significant impact will be made final and the program will begin, begin moving forward and it will hopefully turn on about a year from now. Right. And um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the Writers Alliance, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, who the membership is and, and how you all were able to um, uh, be successful in uh, winning more funding? Of course. So Riders Alliance is New York's grassroots organization of subway and bus riders. We fight for reliable, affordable, accessible, frequent public transit with the idea that that helps us to build a more just and sustainable New York City. Uh, we do all of this by organizing with subway and bus riders. We believe that public transit really is the beating heart of a vibrant, resilient city, but only if it's working and only if it's working for everyone. Um, so our members are very much at the heart of our work. Um, we hold elected officials accountable. We take direct action to guarantee that riders have a powerful voice in the decisions that impact all of us. Um, and we've been around for just over uh, 10 years, and we've really been proud to see uh, the power of riders growing, the power of riders um, growing through transformations to our city. And I think this year's state budget process really shows that we are becoming a powerful political constituency that Albany has to, to listen to. In terms of the six-minute service campaign, this was a campaign that was very much built on a lot of canvassing, base building in the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, um, going out, um, especially we, we did a tremendous amount of, uh, rider organizing work and, and base building last summer. And we heard the same refrain from riders nearly everywhere we went. They were losing too much time and too much money waiting for the train or the bus. Um, and, that's what the six-minute service campaign that we pushed was about. It was about reclaiming that time, getting riders where they need to go, um, pointing out that there is – we can speed up trains, we can do all of this, but we need to have the political will. And what we saw in this budget uh, – this year is that the, the MTA, um, which the governor runs, will be running subways basically as fast as they can run them right now. And we will uh, eagerly wait for the congestion pricing revenues to come back because that's how we're going to fix the subway and really get to six-minute service. Uh, we will be able to modernize signals. I, I'm sure... It, Everyone listening has been on a train where there was a signal issue, and that's why you're stuck. 
and that's why you're not moving. Or you've gone to a train station and there isn't an elevator or that elevator's broken, right? These are, this is what congestion pricing is going to do. And so that's who we are. This is how we do our work, but we really uh, fight for issues and campaigns that we hear as important directly from riders and then riders themselves are at the heart of forming and driving the brilliance behind these campaigns. Right. And, and we have to go here, uh, in about 30 seconds, but real quickly for any uh, one who's listening and who's thinking, well, I'd like to fight for better subway or bus service in, in my neighborhood. How do they get involved with riders Alliance? The easiest way is to go to ridersalliance.org. Um, you can scroll down to the very bottom of the page and join us. It's free. Um, we will immediately, you'll be able to talk to an organizer. You'll be invited to community events, um, be able to get involved in many different ways, shapes, and forms. And um, we are a, a growing community, and there's always room for more. So please, uh, if you have issues with transit in New York City, we're your group. <laughs> okay, well, Betsy Plum, Executive Director of the Writers Alliance, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI this evening. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. We'll be back with more after this short break. That was more of Open Eyes by Rifka A.N.E. Uh, you are listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent. Uh, before we go to our third segment, I want to uh, encourage everybody who can do so. Uh, if you haven't already uh, recently supported WBAI, you can uh, call 212-209-2850. You can become a WBAI buddy or make a one-time contribution, whatever works for you. You can become a WBAI buddy for as little as $10 a month, get all sorts of excellent uh, benefits from doing that. Uh, again, the phone number is 212-209-2850, 212-209-2850. It's listeners like you that keep WBAI on the air WBAI in its 63rd year of broadcasting here in New York as a listener-sponsored radio station, only possible because 
of listeners like yourself, 212-209-2850. Uh, we have a two-week fun drive coming up at w, uh, on WBAI starting next week, but you can help us get the jump on that by giving today, uh, 212-209-2850. You help keep shows like the Independent News Hour on the air. Uh, myself and my colleague Amba, who helps out with the show, we've been hearing more and more favorable comments from people uh, who look forward to listening to the show uh, when we're on the air. You know, again, it's a listener support that all makes that possible. You can go online to give number two uh, uh, dot um, give number two wbai dot org or call two one two two zero nine two eight five zero. And now for our third segment, we turn to a story that has both shocked and divided New Yorkers. On Friday, Daniel Penny was indicted in Manhattan on second degree manslaughter charges in the death of Jordan Neely. The indictment followed more than a week of fierce protests that erupted after a video was released showing Penny, a 24-year-old ex-Marine, placing Neely, a homeless man who uh, earlier in his life was a very prominent Michael Jackson impersonator here in New York, in a chokehold for 15 minutes while they were riding on the F train in lower Manhattan on May 1st. After Penny killed Neely, Several local media outlets relying on anonymous law enforcement sources reported that Neely had thrown trash at subway passengers, aggressively threatened them, and got into an argument with Penny before Penny tackled him to the ground. However, as more eyewitness accounts emerged, it became clear that Neely had not attacked anyone, and it was Penny who had attacked him. On Saturday, May 6th, protesters took over the subway tracks at the F train station at Lexington and 63rd Street on the Upper East Side, bringing trains to a complete standstill. A coalition called the May Days 2023 that includes members of Black Women's March, Warriors in the Garden, and For Our Liberation organized the May 6th subway track uh, takeover. Earlier today, my colleague Amba Gagarian spoke with Kimberly Bernard of Black Women's March, who was arrested at the May 6th action. Bernard has been organizing Black Lives Matter protests since 2020. Amba began by asking her why she and other protesters took this dramatic step to press their demands for justice for Jordan Neely. We knew it was going to be high risk and we knew that we wanted to make a huge statement because we thought that something that this big and this violent and this um, and the fact that there seemed to be no justice in sight for Jordan Neely. We knew that we wanted it to be big, but also we we, we knew we wanted to make a lot of noise, um, but we also knew that we wanted to not George, that the bigger conversation was being addressed around um houselessness you know not enough having resources for um for for persons suffering with mental health conditions the fact that jordan newly existed at the intersection of all these different things um and we wanted to just you know also point out that we have a mayor that is kind of like you know pumping a lot of money into the nypd and taking away resources when we already don't have enough anyways. Um, and we think that those are the conditions that led to Jordan Neely um, living the life he lived and um, dying the way he did on the subway um, by a vig- racist vigilante. And um, yeah, so we wanted to make a lot of noise. We didn't want to do the typical protest where we just marched and said our goodbyes and dispersed, you know, at the end of the march. We needed to make a lot of noise. And I think we were successful in doing that. It was picked up by 
a lot. The city was like, okay, this is a situation that's not going away. Jordan Neely's name was kept alive and it came at a very high price, but it was worth it. And there's also still a lot of work to be done. And tell us a little bit about um, what the protests and vigils, right? A lot of them were sort of initially um, put forth as vigils that, uh, you know, were uh, pretty heavily policed. So tell yeah. us what those were like um, on the ground, you know, how people were responding to the act itself, the, the killing itself, and then how yeah. the police uh, responded to the protests. We've only so far organized two actions. And the first action was a train track protest, which is not original, by the way. We are the second person in history to ever do it. The first time it was done was in the 80s um, by another group who were um, protesting a lynching of a black man. Um, and so we saw that and we were like, hmm, mm-hmm. maybe let's, you know, try this. Um, um, so there is historical connection. It wasn't random at all. Um, and so, so we did that and then we, there were a lot of arrests. The, the police are obviously very violent and very brutal, which we expected. Um, SRG. Yeah. Um, and that the, you know, we, we came back, we decided we wanted to do a vigil after. Um, something a little more calm, something just to honor Jordan. Um, and we did it at the station. By the time we got there, it was very clear that that was not going to happen. It was not going to be, uh, just a calm, respectful, you know, vigil. We, the and first thing at the station, yeah. the Broadway Lafayette station where, where Neely was killed. Absolutely. The Broadway Lafayette station where Jordan was killed. Um, vigil there. Yes. That's where we did the vigil outside the station. Um, the media was out at full effect. So we re- because of the train track protest, there was just a lot of traction and we wanted to talk to the people. We also wanted to talk to the media. We wanted to explain to them all the things that we were also going as organizers because we anticipated violence from the police, but this is the first time we did not, it's not the first time, but we really did not anticipate the blowback that we received. Um, and so the media was there and I really think the police did not want us talking to the media. I also think they just didn't want this vigil to go through and they, from the very beginning, made it very clear that they wanted to um, crack down on this vigil. Um, it's, we first started talking on the microphone. They came in. They said, if you talk on a microphone, we're going to arrest you. Um, we tried the megaphone. They said, if you talk on the megaphone, we're going to arrest you. They said, okay, we, we put the megaphone down because I, I said, guys, listen, you know what? I don't need a, a, a microphone. I can speak to you guys with my voice. If you can hear me, we can keep going. They came in. They said, you know what? You're too close to the entrance of the subway. Um, you're going to have to move. We stepped aside. We gave them space. They kept agitating, kept agitating. And then it became very clear that it didn't matter what we did. They wanted to disrupt this vigil. Um, and, you know, as you, as a lot of people know, that vigil turned out to be very violent and even bloody. Um, even there was a, a freelance journalist who is um, works at the New York Times who was arrested that day as well. Um, there was, uh, a, a protester who, you know, was bloodied, um, cause his face was like busted open. 
thing. They so the very first arrest was my comrade, um, who is also a member of Maydays, who decided that he was going to use his microphone, and he did. And once he used the microphone, they came in, um, kind of just grabbed him and very violently um, arrested him. Um, they arrested a couple of other people, and I think it was somewhere maybe after they had already arrested maybe three, four, or five persons, they started playing the LRAD. And as you know, the LRAD says, if you do not clear the roadways, you are going to be arrested, um, and so on. Um, so obviously, usually press doesn't clear the roadway. Press usually doesn't because press typically have that kind of freedom to be um in the middle of the roadway while everyone has to kind of clear they don't treat press like protesters because press isn't protesters they're you know um um they're there to document yeah exactly um so it was really shocking i've never seen that one before i don't think in in my three years of being an activist i don't think i've ever seen a member of the press be arrested um so that happened um um and we tried to regain control of the crowd it was very hard emotions were high people were i was like bawling like you know just to see my comrade be arrested so violently and also just being like tired like it was just a lot of emotions just coming out of people we tried to like kind of regroup everyone and we were like okay we're we they well they lied to us and said that persons were at the seventh precinct which they weren't and we marched to the seventh precinct but also something we didn't know that we found out while we were in jail that night there was another um protester who had been arrested in the subway downstairs and we had no clue and she had no support or no one because no one knew she had been arrested. Um, she was arrested. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of site inside the subway with Jordan's name and flowers and candles. That's where she was. She had not gotten upstairs yet to the rest of us. So they, they arrested her before she got upstairs and she had been sitting in her cell all night with no support and no one advocating for her. And that really made me sad. Um, so we um, eventually decided to march on the sidewalk because they would not allow us to march in the street. We marched on the sidewalk to the 7th Precinct to do jail support. And while at jail support is where they kind of closed in on my comrade and I, Kiara and I. Um, I kept asking, I was like, why am I being arrested? Why am I being arrested? He was like, I t- I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. He would not give me any answers. Um and we were arrested and brought inside. We later found out that we were charged with two felony counts of terrorism um, and also two misdemeanor charges. So we had four charges levied against us. The terrorism charges were later thrown out, but it was a long day and night of being in the seventh precinct or people were trying to find us. They would lie and say we were in one precinct when we were in another. No one knew where we were. They moved us from the seventh precinct to um, central booking. We were in central. We were told we'd be out of central booking by the morning, but we ended up being there until that night, the following night. Um, and the terrorism charges weren't thrown out until about an hour before we saw the judge. So the whole time we thought we we're going before a judge to fight terrorism charges, we were fully prepared to maybe go to Rikers, um, to go to Rikers Island. Were there um, other people that have been involved in any of the protests um, from May 3rd on that have been charged with terrorism or that are facing uh, felony charges? Um, oh, absolutely. 
Exactly. Yeah. There is um, someone who was arrested on the day of the tree track protest. She was released two days later, um, but she's still fighting her felony terrorism charge. They have not, it has not been thrown out. We have another protester who is um, fighting, um, who's going to go, he has a felony um, and he is going to go to a grand jury. His case is going to go to a grand jury, even though he was released. But outside of that, it's been like a kind of offline battle of being followed, being tracked, being surveilled, um, having um, infiltrators from the NYPD, like, you know, um, being doxxed. My information, my address where I live was released to the media by the NYPD. Um, and I live here with my children. Um, or if, like um, some of um, protesters and organizers' faces were plastered across the news as being wanted for terrorism. Um, you know, when I was doxxed, even though I was doxxed after being released from jail, when they doxxed me, the information said that I was charged with terrorism. So you know, it's a, it's 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 been warfare. Not to mention. Right after Kiara and I were arrested that night after the vigil, um, there was a press conference immediately after by the NYPD where they claimed that we had a Molotov cocktail, which we absolutely did not have. Um, it was 100% planted by the NYPD. Um, and so it's just, it's just been this kind of like information war and this kind of, you know, surveillance and tracking. People have had to go into hiding, like that kind of thing. Thank you. Kimberly, please uh, respond now too to, um, you know, Daniel Penny, the murder of Neely after um, nearly two weeks after the murder and after about nine days of protest, he was finally charged with second degree manslaughter and uh, turned himself in pleading not guilty. This is second degree manslaughter, not first degree manslaughter, which would have been bad enough. Second degree manslaughter. Right. Um, even though he actively put pressure on his neck until he felt him stop moving and kept going anyways after that. Right. That is a really, really scary thing. And it's not acceptable. Also, it's not lost on me that protesters are facing more harsh charges were arrested more violently and spent more time locked up than Daniel Penny did. That says a lot. And um, will, there be, will there be any more protests? Um, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. If you visit our May Days 2023 page, you, the May Days 2023 on Instagram, um, if you read or even on my page at Jamaican Writer Chick, if writer chick, <laughs> um, you'll see our statement um, as a coalition. And it talks about the fact that we want to do 15 actions in the month of May um, for the 15 minutes that Daniel Penny um, strangled Jordan Neely. We also uh, were on that subway track for 15 minutes. Um um, and so it's really significant to us. We've, we've, and, and those 15 actions are going to include, you know, 
protest. It's also going to include actions where we are feeding and clothing on how the unhoused community or the poor. I think that, and one of the reasons why I personally feel invested in seeing this through to the end and continuing to fight for Jordan is because I do feel as though a lot of people failed Jordan for his entire life, um, especially after his mom was unfortunately murdered. And that's a really traumatic way for a, a child to lose their parent. Um, and so the system failed him in so many ways. The people on that subway car failed him. And we just cannot fail him now. Like we can't, we, we have to keep going. And, um, is it easy? It isn't, you know, it's not easy to know that you're, you know, you're at any moment could be snatched up and, and jailed or that your address has been, um, you know, put out there for the world, um, to know where you live or that your face has been plastered across the media as being a terrorist. It's not easy, but also this is the least that I can do, I feel, for Jordan and for the unhoused community and for people who need resources. Jordan was on the New York City has a list of the top 50 most vulnerable people who need the most help. And he was on that list. And But we can also make sure that there are no more Jordan Neelys, you know, in the future. And that, to me, is really the bigger picture here. It's making sure that other um young people and just people in general who are suffering in the way that jordan suffered can get the help that they need we really have to be more careful and thoughtful about where we and it's our freaking money right it's our money and we're telling you we want our money to be put into our community and into resources not into policing because the most the safest communities in America are not the most policed communities. It's the most well-resourced communities. The most well-resourced communities are the safest communities in this country. And that is what we want for, you know, for, for everywhere. That was Kimberly Bernard of Black Women's March speaking earlier today to the Independence Amber Gagarian. And that wraps up today's show. Thanks to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Once more, the phone number you can call to support this radio station is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give number 2 wbaiorg We'll be back same time next week with another edition of the Independent News Hour. Our musical outro is Octopus by Desron Douglas. <laughs> Thank you.